The blow of the wizard's hand struck Raistlin squarely on the breastbone. Stunned at the sight of Immolata springing up out of the darkness, Raistlin could not react fast enough to save himself. He went down as if felled by a thunderbolt, struck his head when he landed, sprawled and gasping for breath on the cavern floor. Pain lanced through his skull. He came near to blacking out. Looking up blearily from the floor, Raistlin saw Immolatus holding the staff of Magius, gloating over his prize. Raistlin's most precious possession, his most valued treasure, the symbol of his achievement, his triumph over sickness and suffering, his reward for long and torturous hours of study, his victory over himself, this was the prize Immolatus had taken from him. The loss of the staff banished pain, banished amazement, banished any fear he held for his life, any value placed on that life. With a snarl of fury, Raistlin leapt to his feet, heedless of the pain and the blue and yellow stars that shot through his vision, half-blinding him. He attacked Immolatus with a courage and strength and ferocity that astounded his brother, already astounded by the sight of the strange red robe who had burst upon them so suddenly. Raistlin did not fight his desperate battle alone. The staff of Magius aided him. Created by an archmage of immense power, brought into being with one intent, to aid in the fight against Queen Tachesis, the staff and its master had fought her evil worms during the last dragon war. The staff had never known its master's fate. The staff knew that Magius was dead only when they came to bring the staff to be laid to rest on his funeral pyre. History never recorded the name of the white robe who saved the staff. Some say that it was Solinari himself, come down from the heavens, who plucked the staff from the flames. Certainly it was someone who had the foresight and the wisdom to know that although the queen might be defeated now— Dark wings would once again blot out Crin's son. The staff of Magius penetrated Immolatus's disguise. The staff knew that a dragon, a red dragon, a minion of Queen Tachesis, had laid covetous hands upon it. The staff unleashed its anger, an anger pent up for hundreds of years. The staff waited until Immolatus had a good solid grip on it, then let loose its magic. An explosion of white light erupted from the staff. A blast rocked the burial chamber. Caramon was staring directly at the staff when its anger flared. The light seared his eyes. He fell back in agony, clapping his hands over his face. A black hole ringed round with purple fire obscured his vision, left him blind as a child in the womb. Warm blood splattered his face and hands. He heard a horrible rising scream. Raced, he cried, ragged and fearful, trying desperately to see. Raced! The blast knocked Scrounger to the cavern floor, rattled his wits in his head. He lay staring up dazedly at the ceiling, wondering how a lightning bolt had managed to strike this far underground. Raistlin had sensed the staff's fury, 
realized it was about to unleash its magical rage. Averting his eyes, he flung up his arm to protect his face. The force of the explosion sent him staggering back against the tomb, where, it seemed, he felt a firm hand support and steady him, keep him from falling. Raistlin thought the comforting touch belonged to his twin. Raistlin would later come to realize that Caramon, blind and helpless, was halfway across the burial chamber at the time. Emolatus screamed. Pain such as he had known only once before, pain inflicted by the magical dragon lance, flared up his arm, spreading like searing flame throughout his body. The dragon let go of the staff. He had no choice. He no longer had a hand. Drenched with his own blood, cut by the shards of his own broken bones, Immolatus had never been so furious in his life. Though grievous, the dragon's wounds were not mortal. He had one desire, and that was to kill these wretched beings who had inflicted such horrible damage on him. He released himself from the spell that bound him to human form. When he had regained his own body, he would incinerate these gnats, these worms with their infernal stinging bite. Raistlin's enchanted gaze saw the dragon in mid-transformation. He saw the wizard's human body shriveling, saw something red, glittering, monstrously evil rising from it. What that being was, he had no idea. Raistlin had one thought now, and that was to retrieve his staff, which lay on the floor, its crystal blazing fiercely. He knelt, seizing the staff. Using all his strength, strength he did not know he possessed, drawing on his fear and his terror and his pain, he swung the staff at Immolatus, smote him on the chest. The staff's own magical fury added impetus to Raistlin's strike. Their combined force was like a lightning strike. The blow lifted Immolatus, propelled him backward through the iron gate, flung him half in and half out of his dragon form, clear of the burial chamber into the narrow tunnel. Immolatus smashed up against the rock wall of the corridor. Bones cracked and snapped, but they were the bones of his feeble human form, and he could knit them back together with a single word of magic. Immolatus lay a moment in the tunnel, in the darkness, reveling in the sensation of his strength, his power, his immenseness returning. His jaws grew and elongated, his teeth snapped with anticipation of crunching human bone. The muscles of his body rippled pleasantly beneath the newly formed scales that were soft now, but would soon be hard as diamond. The fire burned in his belly, gurgled in his throat. He was growing too big for the corridor, but that didn't matter. He would rise up, cleave through the rock, raise the mountain, and drop it on the bodies of those who had dared insult him. He needed only a few more moments. A voice, a woman's voice, cold and biting as steel, pierced his head. You have disobeyed me for the last time. Kitiara's sword caught the light of the staff of Magius and shone silver in that light. 
Wounded, weakened by loss of blood and his spellcasting, dazzled by the flaring light, Emiletus looked into that light and thought he saw his queen. Furious, vengeful, implacable, she stood over him and pronounced his doom. The sword drove into his back, severed his spine. Emiletus gave a horrific cry of anger and malice. He jerked and twitched spasmodically, no longer in control of his own body. He glared at his destroyer, and though he saw her through a blood-dimmed mist, he recognized Kitiara. I will not die, a human, Immolatus hissed. This will be my tomb, but I will see to it that it is yours as well, worm. Kitiara wrenched her sword free of the body, stumbled backward. In his death throes, the dying dragon was continuing to revert to his original form. The transformation was almost complete. His body, a body far too big for the narrow cavern corridor in which she stood, continued to expand. Immolatus twisted and writhed. His massive tail thrashed about, struck the rock wall time and again. Wings flapped wildly. His clawed feet scrabbled and scraped against the tunnel walls. The ceiling cracked, supporting timbers creaked and sagged. The mountain shuddered, the floor shook. Raced, Caramon's frantic voice. Where are you? I, I can't see. What's happening? I am here, my brother, here. I have hold of you. Stop flailing about. Take my hand. Scrounger, help me with him. Back out the way we came, quickly. Kitiara made a convulsive leap for the wrought iron gate. She stumbled into the burial chamber in time to see a flutter of red robe, a flickering light that came from a crystal atop a staff. The iron gate swung shut. The tunnel behind her gave way with a crash. Kitiara staggered toward the tomb of the night, hoping against hope that the burial chamber was strong enough to withstand the fury of a vindictive goddess. Rocks fell down around her. She grabbed hold of the tomb, clung to it as the floor shook. I helped you, Sir Phantom, she cried. Now it's your turn. She crouched by the tomb, keeping her hand on the marble. Rocks fell, but not near her. They fell on the piece where she'd seen the body, the body of herself. Nothing there now but crumbled stone. Kitiara shut her eyes against the grit and the dust, and pressed herself close against the tomb with more fondness than she had ever pressed against the body of any lover. Eventually the rumbling ceased, the dust settled. Kitiara stirred, opened her eyes, blinked away the grime, and dared to draw a breath. Dust flew into her mouth. She began to cough. The darkness was absolute. She could see nothing, not even her hand in front of her face. Hands outstretched, she grabbed hold of the top of the tomb, felt the marble smooth and cold. She pulled herself to her feet and stood leaning against the sarcophagus for support.
a faint light, softly gleaming, began to shine. Kit looked for the source, saw that the light came from the tomb. The sarcophagus was no longer empty, as it had been when she had first seen it. It held a corpse. Kiriara looked on the face of the corpse, a face at peace, a face victorious. Thanks, Sir Nigel, said Kit. I guess we're even. She looked around, took stock of her situation. The cavern was filled with fallen rock, but she could see no cracks in the ceiling or the floor, no holes in the walls. She looked back at the iron gate that led to the tunnel into the mountains. Beyond the iron gate was a wall of rock. The dragon's body lay buried beneath a cairn, flung down on him by his queen. That way was blocked. But the way in, through the other silver and gold gate, was open and relatively clear of debris. Be seeing you, she said to the knight, and started to leave. A force held her, a force not of this world. Kittyara's hand, her sword hand, froze to the marble as if she had placed wet fingers on a block of ice. Fear twisted her stomach. She might wrench her hand free, but she would leave her flesh and her blood behind. For one horrible moment she thought that this was to be the price she would have to pay, and then she realized suddenly that she might escape with a lesser cost. She reached for her belt with her other hand, fumbled with numb fingers until she located the book containing the map that led to the egg chamber. She shook so she could barely hold the small volume. Wanting only to be rid of it, she flung the book into the open tomb. There, she said bitterly. Satisfied? The force released her. She snatched her hand from the tomb, rubbed her chill fingers, massaged life into them. The burial chamber might be a safe haven, but Kittyara had seen all of it she wanted. She left by the silver and gold gate, taking the same route her brothers had taken, and kept walking until she had left the burial chamber and Sir Nigel far behind. The sound of voices brought her to a halt. Up ahead she could hear her brother's voices and their footfalls echoing along the corridor. She could have caught up with them, but Kit decided she didn't want to see them. She didn't want to have to answer their questions, didn't want to have to make up a story to explain why she was here and what she was doing. Above all, she didn't want to join them in reminiscences about the days gone by, past times, old friends— especially old friends. She would wait here in the corridor until she was certain they were long gone. Then she would sneak out. Kittyara leaned back against the rocks, made herself as comfortable as she could. She wasn't bothered by the darkness. She found it soothing after that eerie and unnatural light in the night's tomb. Resting, she considered her future. She would return to Lord Ariakas. True, she had failed in her mission to steal the dragon eggs, but she could lay the fault for that failure squarely on the dragon. Since sending the dragon to find the eggs had been Lord Ariakas's idea, he had no one but himself to blame. 
She would be the one who had salvaged this mission, had seen to it that the dragon paid for his crime of disobedience, had taken care that the body of the slain beast was buried where no one would ever be the wiser. I'll have my promotion, Kittyara reflected, stretching out her legs. And this will be just the beginning. I'll make myself indispensable to Ariakis, in more ways than one. She smiled to herself in the darkness. The two of us will have the power to rule Kryn. In Her Majesty's name, of course, Kit added, with an apprehensive glance into the darkness around her. She had witnessed the Queen's wrath, had come to expect it. She had witnessed another power that day, the power of love, of self-sacrifice, of honor and resolve. She made nothing of that, however. Any feeling of respect she might have held for the night had vanished in resentment that he had bested her at the tomb. Her hand still hurt. Exhausted by her efforts, Kittyara rested, half-dozed. She could no longer hear her brother's voices. They had probably reached the entrance by now. She'd give them time enough to completely vacate the premises— then she would follow and leave this ill-fated temple. She found herself thinking of her brothers. She had been disturbed at seeing them at first. The twins brought back memories of a life and time she'd outgrown, memories of people she didn't want to remember. But now that they were gone and she was not ever likely to see them again, Kit was glad she'd had this opportunity to see how they had turned out. Caramon was a warrior now, it seemed, and though he had not accorded himself with any particular distinction in this magical fight, Kittyara could well believe that in ordinary battles he would prove himself a good and effective warrior. As for Raistlin, she didn't know what to make of him. She would never have recognized him had it not been for his voice, and even that had grown weaker than she remembered. But he was a wizard now, apparently, and he had fought Immolatus with a ferocity and courage she found extremely gratifying. Just as I planned, she said to herself, they've both turned out just as I hoped. Kittyara felt an almost maternal pride in her boys as she sat in the darkness, cleaning the dragon's blood from her sword, waiting for an opportunity to escape this accursed temple. Leave the unlucky city of Hope's End. Raced! There's light ahead, isn't there? Caramon said hoarsely, his voice raw with fear. I think I can see it, though it's awfully dim. Yes, Caramon, there is light, Raistlin replied. We are back in the temple. The light you see is sunlight. He did not add that it was bright sunlight. I'll be able to see again, won't I, Raced? Caramon asked anxiously. You'll be able to heal me, won't you? Raistland didn't answer immediately, and Caramon turned his sightless eyes in the direction of his brother. Scrounger, staggering beneath Caramon's weight, looked hopefully at Raistlin as well. He will be all right, won't he? the half-kender asked in trepidation. Certainly, Raistlin said. The condition is only a temporary one. 
he hoped to heaven that his diagnosis was true. If the damage was permanent, it was beyond his ability to heal, beyond anyone's ability to heal in this day and age when no clerics walked the land. Raistlin recalled one of Weird Megan's patients, a man who had stared too long into the sun during a solar eclipse. She had tried treating him with poultices and salves to no avail. His sight had been irrevocably lost. Raistlin did not mention this to Caramon, however. Raist, Caramon persisted anxiously. When do you think this will go away? When do you think I'll be able to see... Raistlin, Scrounger said at the same time, who was that ugly old wizard? It seemed like he knew you. Raistlin did not want to tell Caramon the truth, did not want to say the words, maybe never. Raistlin feared that even the blind Caramon must eventually see through a comforting lie. Raistlin was thankful to Scrounger for changing the subject, and answered the half-kender with a cordiality that both astonished and pleased him. His name was Immolatus. I met him in the enemy's camp, Raistlin replied. Master Horkins sent me there to trade magical goods, but the wizard wanted none of what we had to offer. He wanted only one thing. My staff. He paused a moment, thinking how to phrase the next question, wondering even if he should ask it. His need to know was strong, overcame his natural reticence. Scrounger, Caramon, I want to ask you both something. He hesitated another moment, then said, What did you see when you looked at the wizard? A wizard, said Caramon cautiously, afraid that this might be a trick question. I saw a wizard, said Scrounger. A wizard in red robes like yours, only they were more of a fiery red now that I think about it. Why raced? Caramon asked with disquieting astuteness. What did you see when you looked at him? Raistland thought back to the red-scaled monstrosity that for an instant had shimmered in his cursed vision. He tried to put shape and form to it, but nothing emerged. The staff of Magius had struck at that moment, cast the wizard into darkness, a darkness that had come crashing down on top of him. I saw a wizard, Caramon, he said. His voice hardened. A wizard who wanted to steal my staff from me. Then why did you ask the question? Scrounger started to ask, but was silenced by a baleful glance. That magic spell you cast was really something raced, Caramon said after a moment. How did you do it? You would not understand if I told you, Caramon, Raistlin said irritably. Now, no more talking. It's bad for you. Scrounger demanded to know how talking could be bad for Caramon's eyesight, but Raistlin didn't hear him, or if he did, he pretended that he didn't. He was thinking about the magic. Ever since he had been given the staff of Magius, Raistlin had been acutely aware of the life within the staff, magical sentience given to it by its creator. He had experienced a vague feeling of inadequacy, 
as if the staff were comparing him to its creator and finding him lacking. He remembered the terrible fear when Immolatus took the staff from him, the fear that the staff had left Raistlin of its own accord, leapt gladly into the hand of a wizard of more skill and power. Raistlin had been overjoyed and relieved when the staff joined him in the battle. After the initial shock of the explosion, which he had sensed coming, but which he had not commanded, he and the staff had acted as a team. He had the feeling that the staff was pleased with itself and that it was also pleased with him. Odd to think, but he felt that he had earned the staff's respect. His hand tightened lovingly on the staff as he emerged from the silver doors into the welcome light of the sun streaming in through the windows of the abandoned temple. The sun shone warm on Karaman's face, and he smiled. His vision was returning. He was certain of it, he said. He could see the sunlight, and he swore he could see shadowy images of his brother and scrounger. That is well, my brother, Raistlin said. Keep your eyes closed, however. The sunlight is too strong and might do them more injury. Sit down here for a moment while I make a bandage. He cut a strip of cloth from the hem of his robe and tied it gently around Caramon's eyes. Caramon protested at first, but Raistlin was firm and, accustomed to obeying his brother, Caramon submitted to being blindfolded. He trusted his brother's diagnosis, accepted that his vision would return. Fretting and worrying would do him no good, and so he sat with his back against the sun-warmed stone, basked in the light shining on his face, and wondered how the attack was proceeding and if they'd set up the mess tent. "'Can you walk, Caramon?' Raistlin asked. There had been no more tremors, but he had no idea if the temple had suffered any structural damage. Until someone who knew something about such matters came to look at it, he did not trust to its safety. This holy place does appear to exert a healthful influence, Raistland thought, watching color return to his brother's wan face. His pulse was strong, and he stated stoutly that he was well enough to run up good old Heavegut Hill. He gave it as his opinion that he was completely cured, and if Raistlin would just take off this damn rag. Raistlin said firmly that the rag must stay. He and Scrounger assisted Caramon to stand. Caramon walked under his own power, accepting his brother's hand on his arm to guide him. The three left the temple to the sunshine and the silver moonlight, to the dead and to the living and the dragons sleeping safely in their leathery shells, their spirits roaming the stars, waiting to be born. Chapter 20 Here they come, the sergeant of the archers of Hope's End yelled from the wall. As if in witness to the truth of his words, the man standing next to him dropped down dead, an arrow through his helmet. The baron's men stood at the ready behind the gates. One moment there had been confusion, yelling and shouting. The next, disciplined silence. 
All eyes were on the officers, whose eyes were on the baron, standing atop the wall, looking out at the enemy, an enemy whose numbers seemed to grow alarmingly. Even counting the forces of the city, the baron was outnumbered almost two to one. And these were fresh troops, well-armed, with an able, if loathsome, commander. Under heavy covering fire, the enemy's engineers were running across the ground, hauling siege ladders and battering rams. The ranks of the infantry were four deep and marched to the sound of booming drums. Even as he watched death flow toward him across the bloody ground, the baron admired the precise discipline, the men keeping their formation even when arrows from the wall hit their first ranks. Looking at the size and might of the forces arrayed against him, the baron was confirmed in his thinking. No matter what others might say, the action he intended was not the rash act of a madman. It was the only way to save this city, save his own forces. If they remained here, hiding behind the walls, the great numbers of the enemy would swarm over them like ants on a carcass. The baron turned to look to his own men. They were lined up by company along the road. Each company was eight men across and as many as twenty men deep. There was no talking in the ranks, no foolery. The men were in grim and deadly earnest. The baron looked down at them, and he was proud of them. "'Soldiers of the army of the mad baron!' he yelled from the wall. The men looked up at him, answered with a cheer. "'This is the end,' he continued. "'We are victorious this day, or we are dead!' He pointed a jabbing finger out over the wall. "'When you set eyes upon your enemy—' Remember that they shot our dead in the back. A roar of anger rumbled through the troops. It is time to take our revenge. The roar of anger swelled to a cheer for the baron. Good luck to us all, he said to the city's commander and to the Lord Mayor, shaking each by the hand. The Lord Mayor was ashen in color. Sweat rolled down his face, despite the cool wind that had recently surged out of the mountains. He was a political figure. He could have sought refuge in his own home, and few would have thought worse of him. But he was grimly determined to stick to his post, though he cringed and shook at every trumpet blast. "'Good luck to you, mad lad,' said the elderly commander to the baron, and ducked just in time to avoid an arrow. Confound it, the old man muttered, with a sour look for the arrow that lay spent at his feet. Let me at least live long enough to see this sight. Win or lose, it's going to be glorious. The baron left the wall, ran nimbly down the stairs and back to street level. He took his place on foot at the front of his army, drew his sword and raised it high. The sun's bright rays flashed along the blade. He held the sword poised, waiting. The gate boomed and shuddered. The first of the battering rams had arrived. Before the enemy could hit the gate a second time, the baron gave the signal. 
The gates to the city of Hope's End swung open. The attackers cheered, thinking they had breached the defenses. The Baron let fall his sword. Trumpets sounded, drums rolled. Attack, the Baron yelled, and ran forward through the open gates, straight into the ranks of the enemy. Behind him came Center Company, the most experienced veterans in the army, the most heavily armored and armed. With a savage yell, they thundered through the gates, wielding swords and battle-axes. Caught completely by surprise, the soldiers manning the battering ram dropped the oak log, fumbled for their swords. The baron hit their leader squarely in the chest with his sword, drove the weapon clean through the man's body so that it emerged covered with blood from his back. The baron yanked free his weapon, parried a vicious chop from another of the enemy, who was attacking him on the flank, thrust the sword into the man's ribcage. He tried to recover the sword only to find his weapon fouled in the man's ribs. He couldn't pull the sword free. Fighting and death were all around him. His men were shouting and screaming with rage, blood spattered on them all like rain. The baron placed his foot on the body, held it down, and yanked free his sword. He was ready to face the next enemy soldier, only to find there were none. The battering ram lay in front of the gates, surrounded by the dead bodies of those who had wielded it. Now began the real battle. The baron looked for his standard-bearer, found the man right beside him. Forward, he yelled, and began the advance, his standard snapping in the cold wind. Center Company continued their advance on the run, yelling their battle cries, brandishing weapons stained with blood. Arrows from Archer Company, manning the walls, buzzed over their heads and fell among the enemy like vicious wasps, decimating the enemy's front ranks. For many of the enemy soldiers, this was their first combat. And this was nothing like training. Their comrades were dying around them. An army of savage, screaming monsters hurtled toward them. The front ranks of the enemy halted. The soldiers wavered. Officers plied their whips, shouted for the lines to hold. Center Company, led by the Baron, hit the front ranks of the enemy with an armored-plated crash that could be heard on the walls. They stabbed and sliced and chopped, showing no mercy, giving no quarter. They had seen the bodies of their comrades lying before the gate, the black-feathered arrows in their backs. They had one thought, and that was to kill those who had used them so treacherously. The front ranks of the enemy collapsed under the fury of the charge. Those who stood their ground paid for their courage with their lives. A few fell back, fighting. Many more flung down their shields and, heedless of the whips, broke and ran. Center Company kept going, plowing through the enemy's lines, leaving a bloody furrow behind. Other companies came behind Center Company, fighting those of the enemy who, driven by the whips of their officers, came surging in to fill the great gaping hole left by the onslaught of the Baron and his company. 
There's our objective, the Baron shouted, and pointed to a small rise where stood Commander Kolos. Kolos had laughed loudly and derisively at the sight of the Baron's men pouring out of the gate, leaving the safety of the city behind in a mad charge. He waited confidently for his men to overwhelm the Baron's forces, crush them, annihilate them. He heard the crash as the two armies came together. He waited for the Baron's standard to fall. The standard did not fall. The standard advanced. It was Kolos's men who were running now, running in the wrong direction. Shoot those cowards, Kolos roared in fury to his archers. Foam flecked his mouth. He pointed at his own fleeing troops. Commander, Master Vardash, his face swollen from his commander's blow, came running up to report. The enemy has broken through the lines. My horse, Kolos yelled. Other officers were shouting for their horses, but before the squires could bring forward the horses, Center Company and the Baron smashed into the knot of men and their bodyguards. Master Vardash fell in the first onslaught, his face now a mask of blood. Kolos is mine, the Baron yelled, and pushed and shoved his way through the press of heaving, struggling bodies to reach the commander who had insulted him and murdered his men. Kolos held his ground, and it seemed that he alone might yet turn the tide of battle. Heavily armored, he scorned to use a shield, fought with two weapons, a long sword in one hand and a dirk in the other. He thrust and slashed, seeming to use very little effort. Three men fell to the ground before him, one with his skull cleaved in two, another decapitated, the third from a dirk stab to the heart. So formidable was Kolos that Center Company's advance faltered. The most experienced of the veterans fell back before him. The Baron halted, shocked at the sight of that goblinish face twisted into a horrible smile, a smile made hideous with battle-lust and the delight in killing. "'You betrayed us!' the Baron roared. "'By Kiri Joleth, I swear that I'll nail your head to my tent-post this night, and spit on it in the morning!' "'Mercenary scum!' Trampling bodies beneath his feet— Kolos strode forward. I challenge you to single combat, a fight to the death. If you've the stomach for it, you cheap sellsword. The Baron's face split into a grin. I accept, he yelled. Glancing behind him, he shouted, You men know what to do. Yes, sir, Commander Morgan bellowed. The Baron marched forward to meet his foe. His men held back, watching grimly. Kolos swung a vicious blow with his longsword, but he was used to fighting taller enemies. The sword whistled clean over the head of the Baron, who crouched low and made a running dive for Kolos's knees. The move took Kolos completely by surprise. The Baron barreled into Kolos, took him down to the ground. "'Now!' shouted Commander Morgan. The soldiers of Center Company rushed forward, 
leapt on top of the fallen commander, swords slashing and stabbing. The Baron crawled out from under the crush. Are you hurt, my lord? Commander Morgan asked, assisting the Baron to stand. I don't think so, said the Baron. I think this is mostly his blood. I can't believe that bastard thought I'd actually fight him in honorable combat. <laughs> Morgan waded back into the fray, grabbed hold of his soldiers, pulled them back. All right, boys, fun's over. I think the bastard's dead. The men gradually fell back, breathing hard, bloody but grinning. The Baron walked over to look at the body of the commander, weltering in his own blood, his eyes staring skyward, a look of utter surprise on his yellow goblin face. The Baron nodded in grim satisfaction, then turned, his sword in his hand. Our work's not done yet, men, he began. I'm not so sure of that, my lord, said Commander Morgan. Look at that, will you, sir? The Baron looked around the field. The officers of Kolos's command staff, who were not dead or wounded, were on their knees, hands raised in surrender. The rest of the enemy was fleeing the field, running for the shelter of the trees, the Baron's men in pursuit. It's a rout, sir, said Morgan. The Baron frowned. Caught up in their own battle lust, his troops had broken ranks, were scattered all over the field. The enemy was on the run now, but it would take only one courageous and level-headed officer to halt the rout, regroup his men, and turn defeat into victory. The bugler! The Baron looked around. Where in the name of Kiri Joleth is my goddamned bugler? I think he was killed, my lord, said Morgan. The sight of sunshine gleaming off brass caught the Baron's eye. Among the enemy's officers stood a boy, shivering and frightened, a bugle clutched in his white-knuckled hand. Bring me that boy, the Baron commanded. Commander Morgan grabbed hold of the boy, dragged him forward. The boy fell to his knees in abject terror. Stand up and look at me, blast you. Do you know a posy from Abinacinia? the Baron demanded. The boy slowly and fearfully regained his feet, stared at the Baron in blank astonishment. Do you know it, boy? the Baron roared. Or don't you? The boy gave a trembling nod. The tune was a common one. Good! The Baron smiled. Sound the first chorus and I'll let you go. The boy shivered, panicked, confused. It's all right, son, the Baron said, his voice softening. He placed his hand on the boy's shoulder. My regiment uses that tune as recall. Go ahead and blow it. Reassured, the boy brought his instrument to his lips. The first note was a failure. The Baron winced. Gamely, the boy licked his lips and tried again. The clear sounds of the call cut through the sounds of battle and pursuit. Good boy, good, the Baron said with approval. Repeat it and keep repeating it. The boy did as he was told. The familiar call brought the men to their senses. They broke off the attack, looked around for their officers, began to reform into ranks. 
March them back to the city, Morgan, the Baron ordered. Pick up any of our wounded on the way. He cast a grim glance in the direction of the enemy encampment. We may have to do this all over again tomorrow. I doubt it, my lord, said Morgan. Their officers are either dead or our prisoners. The soldiers will wait for nightfall, then break camp and head for home. There won't be a tent standing there by morning. A wager on that, Morgan. A wager, my lord. The two clasped hands. This is one bet I hope I lose, said the baron. Morgan ran off to organize the withdrawal. The baron was about to follow, realized that the trumpet was still blowing raucously and desperately. Very good, son, the baron said. You can stop blowing now. The boy lowered his trumpet hesitantly to his side. The baron nodded, waved his hand. Run along, lad. I said I'd let you go. You're free. No one will hurt you. The boy didn't move. He stood staring at the baron wide-eyed. The baron, shrugging, started to walk away. Sir, sir, the boy called. Can I join your army? The baron stopped, looked back. How old are you, boy? Eighteen, sir, he answered. You mean thirteen, don't you? The boy hung his head. You're too young for a life like this, son. You've seen too much death already. Go home to your ma. Likely she's worried sick about you. The boy didn't budge. The baron shook his head, resumed walking. He heard footsteps patter along behind him. He sighed again but did not turn around. My lord, are you all right? Master Senege asked. Dead tired, the baron answered, and I hurt all over, but otherwise unharmed, praise be to my god. He glanced behind him, motioned the officer to come near. Can you use some help, Senege? The master nodded. Yes, my lord. We've got a lot of wounded, not to mention all these prisoners. I could definitely use another hand. The baron jerked his thumb back at the boy. You've got one. Go with Master Senege, boy. Do as you're told. Yes, my lord. The boy smiled tremulously. Thank you, my lord. Shaking his head, the baron trudged across the field, heading back to the city of Hope's End, whose bells were ringing in wild triumph. Chapter 21 Glorious fight, Red, Horkin said, gleefully rubbing his hands, which were black with flash powder. He came through the gates with the first of the wounded, to find his apprentice waiting for him. You should have been there. Horkin gazed intently at Raistlin. I take that back. Looks like you saw some action yourself, Red. What happened? Do we really have time to waste on this, sir? Raistlin asked. With all these wounded to care for? I found the temple. I think it would be an excellent shelter, but I'd like you to take a look at it. Perhaps you're right, said Horkin, giving Raistlin a searching glance. This way, sir, said Raistlin, and turned away. 
Raistlin explained that the temple had been shaken by tremors, nothing unusual for this region, according to the citizens. Horkin examined the temple, studied the pillars and the walls, and finally deemed it sound. All that was needed now was a source for water. A search revealed a well of clear, cold spring water at the rear of the temple. Horkin gave orders that the wounded should be brought to this restful place. The wagons bearing the wounded trundled through the streets. The grateful citizens crowded around with offers of blankets, food, bedding, medicines. Soon blankets covered the temple floor in neat and even rows. The surgeon plied his tools. Raistlin and Horkin and skilled leaders from the city worked among the men, doing what they could to ease their pain and make them comfortable. No miracles of healing occurred in the temple. Some of the soldiers died, others lived. But it did seem to Horkin's mind that those who died were more at peace, and that the wounded who survived healed much more rapidly and completely than could have been expected. The first order of business for the baron was to visit the wounded. He came as he was, fresh from the battlefield, grimy, bloody, some of the blood his own, most of it his enemies. Though he was near to falling with exhaustion, he did not show it. He did not rush his visit, but took time to say a few words to each one of the casualties. He called all the soldiers by name, recalled his courage in the field. He seemed to have personally witnessed each valorous act. He promised the dying he would support their families. Raistlin would afterward learn that this was a vow the baron held sacred. His visit to the wounded concluded, the baron paused to chat with Horkin and Raistlin about the temple they had discovered. The baron was intrigued to hear that a tomb of a Salamnic knight lay in a burial chamber beneath the cavern. Raceland described most of their experience in detail, keeping to himself certain facts that were really no one else's business. The baron listened attentively, frowned when he heard that the lid of the knight's sarcophagus had been opened. That must be attended to, he said. Robbers may have already tried to loot the tomb. This gallant knight should be allowed to continue his slumber in peace. You have no notion of what this treasure is, do you, Magere? The inscription made no mention of it, sir, Raistlin answered. My guess is that whatever it was, it now lies beneath tons of rock. The tunnel that leads out from the burial chamber is completely impassable. I see. The Baron eyed Raistlin closely. Raistlin returned the Baron's gaze steadily, and it was the Baron who shifted his eyes away from the stare of the strange hourglass pupils. Continuing his rounds of the wounded, the Baron came to the cot where Caramon fretted and fidgeted, an extremely uncooperative patient. He wasn't hurt, he maintained. Nothing was wrong with him. He wanted to be up and around and doing. He wanted a proper meal, not some water they'd dragged a chicken through and called it soup. His vision was fine, or rather it would be if they'd just take off this confounded rag. Scrounger remained with the patient, trying to distract him with stories and reminding him twenty times a half hour not to rub his eyes. Though busy with his other patients, Raistlin kept watch on the Baron's movements through the temple, and when the Baron came to his twin, Raistlin hastened over to be present during this conversation.
Caramon Megere, the Baron said, shaking his hand. What happened to you? I don't recall seeing you in the battle. Baron? Caramon brightened. Hello, sir. I'm sorry I missed the fighting. I heard it was a glorious victory. I was here, sir. We... Raistlin laid a hand on his brother's shoulder, and, when the Baron wasn't looking, gave Caramon a hard pinch with his fingers. Ouch! Caramon yelped. What? There, there, said Raistlin soothingly, adding in an undertone. He has these momentary flashes of pain, my lord. As for what happened to him, he was with me exploring the temple. We were caught in the tunnels when the quake hit. Rock dust flew in Caramon's eyes, blinding him. The blindness is temporary. He needs rest, that is all. Raistlin's fingers digging into Caramon's flesh warned him to keep silent. A piercing glance at Scrounger caused the half-kender, who had opened his mouth, to shut it again. Excellent. Glad to hear it, the Baron said heartily. You're a good soldier, Majer. I'd hate to lose you. Really, sir, Caramon asked. Thank you, sir. You rest like they tell you, the Baron added. You're under the healer's orders now. I want you back on the line as soon as you're fit. I will, sir. Thank you, sir, Caramon said again, smiling proudly. Raced, he whispered, when he heard the Baron's heavy boots move away. Why didn't you tell him what really happened? Why didn't you tell him you fought the enemy wizard and beat him? Yes, why? Scrounger asked eagerly, leaning across Caramon. The answer? Because it was in Raistlin's nature to be secretive. Because he didn't want Horkin asking prying questions. Because he didn't want Horkin or anyone else finding out about the amazing power of the staff. A power Raistlin had no idea how to use himself at the moment. All these reasons he could have given his brother and the half-kender, but he knew they wouldn't understand. Sitting down by his brother's side, Raistlin motioned Scrounger to come close. We didn't exactly cover ourselves in glory, Raistlin told them dryly. Our orders were to inspect the temple and return to report. Instead, we were about to set off in search of treasure. That's true, said Caramon, his face flushing. You wouldn't want the Baron to be disappointed in you, Raistlin continued. No, of course not, Caramon said. Me neither, Scrounger said, chagrined. Then we will keep the truth to ourselves. We hurt no one by doing so. Raistlin rose to his feet, prepared to return to his duties. Scrounger plucked the sleeve of Raistlin's robe. Yes, what do you want, Raistlin glowered. What's the real reason you don't want us to tell, Scrounger asked in an undertone. Raistlin made a show of glancing about to see if anyone was listening. He bent down, whispered in Scrounger's ear. The treasure. Scrounger's eyes opened wide. I knew it. We're going back for it. Some day, perhaps, Raistlin said softly. Don't tell a soul. I won't, I promise. This is so exciting, Scrounger said, and winked several times in a manner calculated to arise instant suspicion in anyone who happened to be watching. Raistlin went about his duties, satisfied that his brother would keep silent out of shame, 
and that Scrounger would keep silent out of hope. Raistlin would have never trusted a true kender with this secret, but in Scrounger's case, the mage guessed that the human side would see to it that the kender side kept its mouth shut. Someday Raistlin did intend to return. Perhaps the treasure was buried. Perhaps it was not. If I could find out what the treasure was, Raistlin said to himself, deftly wrapping a bandage around a soldier's lacerated leg, I might have some idea of where to start looking for it. He spoke with several of the city's inhabitants, asked subtle questions concerning the possibility of a treasure buried in the mountains. The residents smiled, shook their heads, and said that he must have been taken in by some traveling peddler. Hope's End was a prosperous town, but certainly not a wealthy one. They knew of no treasure. Raistland could almost believe that the people of Hope's End were conspiring to keep the treasure from him, except that they were so damn complacent about it, so smiling in their denials, so amused by the entire notion. He began to think that perhaps they were right, that this was all a kinder tale. He went to his bed that night in an extremely bad mood, a mood not helped by the fact that he was troubled by fearful dreams in which he was being attacked by some immense awful creature, a creature he could not see because a bright silver light had struck him blind. The next day the baron held a ceremony to clean the tomb of the fallen rocks and dust, replaced the lid of the sarcophagus over the dead knight. The baron's commanders accompanied him, and because they had discovered the knight's tomb, Raistlin and Caramon and Scrounger were invited to be part of the honor guard. Caramon wanted to remove the bandage. He could see fine, he said, except for a little blurriness. Raistlin was adamant. The bandage must stay. Caramon would have continued the argument, but the baron himself offered Caramon an arm in support a great honor for the young soldier. Flushed with pleasure and embarrassment, Caramon accepted the baron's guidance, walked proudly, if haltingly, at the baron's side. The baron and the honor guard carrying torches entered the burial chamber with grave and solemn aspect, silent and respectful. The baron took his place at the head of the carved knight, the company commanders ranged themselves around the tomb. They stood with hands clasped before them, heads bowed, some praying to Kiri Jolith, others thinking somber thoughts, reflecting on their own mortality. Raistlin took his place at the head of the sarcophagus, keeping close to his brother. Glancing inside the tomb, Raistlin was momentarily paralyzed with astonishment. Inside the tomb was a leather-bound book. Raistlin thought back to yesterday, tried to recall if the book had been there or not. He didn't remember seeing it, but the chamber had been dark yesterday, with only his staff for light. The book was pressed against the side of the marble casket. He might have easily overlooked the book in the shadows. The thought came to Raistlin that this book contained information about the treasure, perhaps revealed its hiding place. He trembled with desire. He needed that book, and even as he stood gazing at it, 
the baron had ceased his prayers, was ordering his commanders to prepare to slide the lid of the sarcophagus back in place. I beg one moment, sir, Raistland said, his voice half stifled by his excitement and his fear that someone else would see the book and announce the fact. I would do honor to this knight. The baron raised his eyebrows, probably wondering why a wizard should honor a Salamnic knight, but he nodded that Raistland was to proceed. Reaching into one of his pouches, Raistland drew out a handful of rose petals. He opened his palm so that all could see what he held. The baron smiled and nodded. Most appropriate, he said, and looked upon Raistland with approval and new respect. Raistland lowered his hand into the tomb to scatter the rose petals over the body of the knight. When he withdrew his arm, he managed that the capacious sleeve of his red robe covered his hand, concealed his fingers, which had deftly taken hold of the slim leather volume. Keeping the precious book hidden in his sleeve, Raistland stepped back from the tomb and stood with his head bowed. The baron looked to Commander Morgan, who ordered the officers to place their hands on the tomb's covering. At a second command, the officers lifted the heavy lid. The baron came to attention, raised his hand in the Salamnic Knight's salute. Carry Joleth be with him,' the baron said. At another command from Morgan, the officers slid the marble top into place. The lid settled upon the sarcophagus with a soft sigh that bore with it the fragrance of dried rose petals. Chapter 22 Raistland had his duties to attend to before he could take time to examine his prize. He secreted the book beneath Caramon's mattress, not telling him of it, returning at every opportunity to make certain the book was still there, had not been discovered. Caramon was touched to find his brother so unusually attentive. Raistlin or Horkin usually sat up during the night with the patients, not keeping broad awake like those on guard duty, but dozing in a chair, starting up at the sound of a moan of pain, assisting a patient to answer nature's call. That night, Raistlin volunteered to take the first watch. The weary Horkin didn't argue, but lay down on his own cot and was soon adding his snores to the cacophony of snores, grunts, groans, coughs, and wheezes of the rest. Raistlin made his rounds, dispensing doses of poppy syrup to those who were in pain, bathing the foreheads of the feverish, adding more blankets to those who chilled. His touch was gentle and his voice held a sympathy in which the wounded could believe, not like the sympathy of the healthy, the robust, however well-meaning. I know what it is to suffer, Raistlin seemed to say. I know what it is to feel pain. His fellow soldiers, who had never had much use for him, who had called him names behind his back and occasionally to his face if his brother weren't around, now begged him to stay by their beds just a moment more, gripped his arm when the pain was the worst, asked him to write letters to wives and loved ones. Raistlin would sit, and he would write, and he would tell stories to take their minds off their pain. After they were healed, those who had never liked him before he nursed them found that they didn't like him any better afterward, 
the difference being that now they would knock the head off anyone who said a bad word against him. When the last patient had finally succumbed to the poppy juice and drifted off to sleep, Raistlin was free to examine his book. He slid it out from its hiding place carefully, although he did not particularly fear waking Karaman, who generally slept the deep sleep ascribed to dogs and the virtuous. Book in hand, concealed in the folds of his sleeves, Raistlin cast a sharp glance at Horkin. The mage slept lightly when he had wounded to tend. The slightest moan or restless tossing would wake him. As it was, he did open one eye, peered sleepily at Raistlin. All is well, master, Raistlin said softly. Go back to sleep. Porkin smiled, rolled over, and was soon snoring lustily. Raistlin watched his superior a moment longer, determined at last that the man must be asleep. No one could fake such obstreperous snores, not without half-strangling himself. Horkin had built a fire in a brazier placed at the front of the temple where an altar might be found. He had not done so out of reverence, although he had taken care to be extremely respectful, but to warm the building against the night's chill. Raistlin drew his chair close to the brazier of charcoal, which burned with a yellow-blue light. He'd added some sage and dried lavender to the fire to try to mask the smell of blood, urine, and vomit that was all pervasive in the sick chamber, a smell he himself had no longer noticed. Settling by the blaze, he cast a sharp look around the room. Everyone was asleep. Raistlin breathed in a deep sigh, leaned the staff of Magius against the wall, and examined his prize. The book was made of sheets of parchment bound and stitched together. A leather cover shielded it from the elements. He found no markings on the outside. It was unlike a spellbook in that regard. It was an ordinary book of the type used by the quartermaster to mark down how many barrels of ale were drunk, how many casks of salt pork were left, how many baskets of apples he had remaining. Raistland frowned. This was not a propitious omen. His spirits improved immensely when he opened the book to find a hand-drawn map on one page and some scrawled letters and numbers on another. This looked much more promising. He glanced hurriedly at the numerals, saw only that they were probably keeping count of something. Jewels? Money? Almost certainly. Now he was getting somewhere. He left the notation, went back to the map. The map had been drawn in haste, with the book resting on an uneven surface, as if the mapper had steadied it on a rock or perhaps his knee. Raistlin spent several moments puzzling out the crude drawings and the even cruder notations. At last he determined that he held in his hands a map showing a path that led to a hidden entrance into the mountain. Raistland pored over the map, studying every detail, and at last came to the unwanted and frustrated conclusion that the map was worthless to him. The mapper had drawn a clear trail that would be easy to follow once one found the trail's starting point. The mapper had marked the trail's starting point, a stand of three pines, but had not given any indication of where these pines might be found in relation to the mountain. 
Were they on the north, the south? Were they halfway up the mountainside, in the foothills? One could presumably search the entire mountain for a stand of three pine trees, but that might take a lifetime. The mapper knew where to find the stand of pines. The mapper could return to the stand without difficulty. Therefore, the mapper had seen no need to add the route to the stands. A wise precaution in case the map fell into the wrong hands. The map was intended to refresh the mapper's memory when he came to claim the treasure. Raistlin stared at the map gloomily, willing it to tell him something more, stared at it until the red lines began to swim in his vision. Irritably, he flipped the page, returned to the notations, hoping that perhaps they would provide some clue. He studied them, intrigued, baffled, so intent upon his work that he did not hear footsteps approaching. He did not know someone was standing behind him until the person's shadow fell across the book. Raistlin started, covered the book with the sleeve of his robe, and sprang to his feet. Caramon backed up a step, raised his hands as if to ward off a blow. Uh, sorry, Raist. I didn't mean to startle you. What are you doing sneaking up on me like that? Raistlin demanded. I thought you might be asleep, Caramon replied meekly. I didn't want to wake you. I wasn't asleep, Raistlin retorted. He sat back down calmed his racing heart, half dizzy with the sudden rush of blood and adrenaline. You're studying your spells. I'll leave you alone. Caramon started to tiptoe away. No, wait, Raistlin said. Come here. I want you to look at something. By the way, who told you you could take off the bandage? No one. But I can see fine, Raist. Even the blurriness is gone. And I'm sick of broth. That's all they feed a guy around here. There's nothing wrong with my stomach. That much is obvious, Raistlin said with a disparaging glance at his twin's rotund belly. Caramon sat down on the floor beside his brother. What have you got there, he asked, eyeing the book with suspicion. He knew from sad experience that books his brother read were likely to be incomprehensible at best, downright dangerous at worst. I found this book in the knight's tomb today, Raistland said in a smothered whisper. Caramon's eyes widened, rounded. You took it? From a tomb? Don't look at me like that, Caramon, Raistland snapped. I am not a grave robber. I think it was placed there on purpose, for me to find. The knight wants us to have it, Caramon said in excitement. It's about the treasure, isn't it? He wants us to find it. If he does, he's making it damn difficult, Raistlin remarked coldly. Here, I want you to look at this word. Tell me what it says. Raistlin opened the book to the page of notations. Caramon looked obediently at the word. There wasn't much doubt. Eggs, he said promptly. Are you certain, Raistlin persisted. E-G-G-S, eggs. Yep, I'm sure. Raistlin sighed deeply. Caramon gazed at him in sudden stunned comprehension. You're not saying that the treasure is... is... 
I don't know what the treasure is, Raistlin said gloomily. Nor, I'm thinking, did the person who wrote this down in the book. It appears that the knight has given us his grocery list. Let me see that. Caramon took the book from his twin, stared at it, pondered it, even tried turning it upside down. These figures, where it says 25G and 50S, that could be 25 gold and 50 silver, he argued hopefully. Or 25 grapes and 50 sausages, Raistlin returned sarcastically. But there's a map, which is completely useless. Even if we knew where to find the starting point, which we don't, the trail leads into tunnels in the mountain, tunnels we saw collapse. He held out his hand for the book. Caramon was still staring at it. You know, Raist, this handwriting looks familiar. Raistlin snorted. Give me back the book. It does, Raist, I swear. Caramon's brow furrowed an aid to his mental process. I've seen this writing before. And you said your eyesight was improved. Go back to bed and put that bandage on. But Raist... Go to bed, Caramon, Raistlin ordered irritably. I'm tired and my head aches. I'll wake you in time to breakfast in the mess tent. You will? That'll be great, Raist. Thanks. Caramon cast one last lingering and puzzled glance at the book, then handed it back to his brother. His twin knew best, after all. Raistlin made his rounds. Finding that everyone was slumbering more or less peacefully, he left to use the privies that were located in a small outbuilding behind the temple. On his return, he tossed the leather book onto the rubbish heap, set for tomorrow's burning. Entering the temple, Raistlin found Horkin wide awake, warming his hands by the glowing fire. The elder mage's eyes were bright, quizzical in the firelight. You know, Red, Horkin said companionably, rubbing his hands in the comfortable warmth. That red-robed wizard you talked about wasn't in the battle. I know because I was on the watch for him. A powerful war wizard, from what you said. He might have made a difference in that fight. We might not have won if he'd been there, and that's strange. Strange that Commander Kolos had a powerful war wizard on his side— and didn't use him in the final conflict. Very strange, that, Red. Horkin shook his head. He shifted his eyes from the blaze to look directly at Raistlin.